Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam the things about live paleontology podcast records when you're playing the theme and the panel are dancing. If only we were doing an audio pod, a video podcast. Anyway, I'm Professor Flint and I don't normally host this podcast, but today, uh, today, today I am and I'm here at the Western Australian Museum, Bulabadup on Wajarak country. Is that how I say it? Wajak country um, in Perth. And I am joined by Dr. Kayla Thorne. Hello, Kayla. Nice to be here. I am joined by Dr. Stephen Potapat. G'day, g'day. I'm joined by Dr. Kenny Trevoyon. Hello, hello. And I'm joined by Associate Professor Natalie Warburton. Thank you for having me. So we've got a professor and associate professor at the end of the table and three doctors in between. So let's hope there's not a plane crash or anything because there is a lot of knowledge on this table that would be lost to the world forever. So here in Western Australia for National Science Week, and what, we're gonna, what I want to do is ask each of you and start with Kayla on, on my right-hand side. Um, Western Australia and Australia is a great place of, of fossil stories. What is your favourite Australian fossil and why? Oh, uh, I'm a little bit biased and unfortunately not towards a WA fossil. <laughs> okay, so over to you, Kenny. No, Kayla. Um, so my favourite Australian fossil ever um, is pretty much all the tiny little bits and pieces of Taliqua frangens, which is a lizard I helped re-describe um, as part of my PhD. And it kind of looks like a bobtail. So I brought a little stuffed, stuffed bobtail for everyone to look at today. So a bobtail for, for people that are not um, here, what, 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 when you say a lizard is a bobtail, what, what does it look like? It's a... It's a shingleback lizard. So every state in Australia has a different name for these guys. Um, they are a type of blue tongue lizard, like a blue tongue skink. Uh, they're generally maybe about as long as um, your forearm, but the fossil was the length of your entire arm, so at least twice as long as you'd expect, and uh, nearly three times as heavy, and was covered in really spiky armor plating, um, and had a really big buff head. So it was a funky shape doing funky things. So it was this big, chunky kind of reptile thing. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, Kenny, over to you. Your favourite Australian fossil. Uh, and why? Well, mine is not from WA either. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, that's good stuff. Uh, and it, I brought it here. It's called Barbaroo Fangaroo. It comes from Queensland. And it's interesting because it's a kangaroo, but it's got fangs. So, do, so did it eat meat? No, it didn't. It actually had fangs... Uh, just like musk deers, so, uh, they're deers that you can find in Asia. They have these fangs, and it's only the males that have those fangs, and they do that to display to other males and say, hey, I got bigger fangs than you. Stay away from my girls. And that's how they actually get the girl. And, and so we had kangaroos that did the same thing in Australia, which is really cool. And the really cool thing about that example is that it reminds us 
that it's really quite important to know and understand animals that are alive now. Yes. So that we see an animal, a herbivore, like a deer that's got fangs, and we see a herbivore like a kangaroo that's got fangs, and it's like, well, was it a meat eater? Did it go around biting the heads off other things and tearing the flesh? I mean, there are other flesh-eating marsupials, which I'm sure we'll come to, but it's that thing, it's that display thing. Okay, Dr. Stephen. Are we coming to Western Australia yet? Uh, no, sadly not. <laughs> um, so, I'm a, like Kayla and Kenny, I'm biased towards what I've always been interested in, what I study, and that's sauropod dinosaurs, so the big long-necked ones. I've been able to dig many of them up in Winton in Queensland with the Age of Dinosaurs Museum, but my favourite has to be Anne, which is a specimen we described this year, which has parts of the skull. So this is the left side of the snout of Anne. Uh, so her nostril would have been here, this is a little extra window in the, in the skull here, and the eye socket would have been here. For the viewers at home who can't see what I'm saying, uh, I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, that's, that's great. We're, we're, um, so, but the cool thing with that is, is that it's, it's quite incomplete and quite mangled, but the job of a paleontologist is to work out what it was, regardless of, of how little or how much of a thing that you've got. Natalie. I better do a Western Australian one. I think you should. I have a little gift for you, Professor Flint. <gasps> Can you see what this animal is? That looks very much like, it's like a little brooch thing. Oh, it is. It's a tree kangaroo. A tree kangaroo. Now, tree kangaroos now only live in the rainforests of Queensland and New Guinea. But we have got tree kangaroo fossils from the area that is now called the Nullarbor Plain, so where there are no trees. So tree kangaroos in the no tree plains. Yes. So what does that tell us about the no tree plains when there were tree kangaroos? Because it, it can tell us two things. It can either tell us that these weird kangaroos were living not in trees or that there were trees. Or yeah. that there were trees. And so this is a really interesting example where we find unexpected animal fossils living in places that we didn't predict they would be, and that tells us something about the environment that we didn't know before. It, it actually just reminded me of, of Euteranus, which is a, a giant, um, and it's not from Australia, it's a, a tyrannosaur the size of an Allosaurus, and it's completely covered in feathers. And big animals tend not to have fur or feathers because they can regulate their temperatures better. So Euteranus, and some other evidence that was, was, has been found since then, Euteranus tells us that it was cold. It was very, very cold in China where Euteranus was, was found. Okay, so uh, my favorite Australian fossil, um, you do find in Western Australia, and I'm going to have to go with Thylacoleo. I was singing about it earlier. Thylacoleo. Whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa. Sometimes <laughs> I call it a giant scissor. To, you can find it on Spotify, by the way. Um, uh, that's Professor Flint on Spotify, Apple Music, our Bandcamp, you know, all the places. Um, so, and we'll leave it in the notes as well, just quietly. Um, but it's, it's this, it's, its ancestors were herbivores, and we know that from the teeth and stuff. And the cool thing with Thylacoleo is that it's like, oh, it's, it's a giant um, leopard-sized, possum-y, wombat-y, carnivorous tree-climbing thing. 
kind of for the grown-ups amongst you that have heard of drop bears, if ever there was an actual drop bear, because these animals lived up until, you know, 40,000 years ago, so humans interacted with them. And there's rock art around Australia that suggests that, well, maybe that rock art is a thylacoleo. So, and that gives us some really interesting insights too in terms of sharing First Nation knowledge and sharing knowledge with, with, with scientists and stuff, or, or, or Western scientists. So, okay, so we, we've, got, we've got our favorites. Um, Next question, I suppose, is, is you're all, you work in the paleontology space. Natalie, you're technically not a paleontologist, are you? Well, some days of the week I would call some myself days a paleontologist. Of the week you, you, you do, because you, you work with paleontologists, but you've you got things in your freezer, don't I you? I do. I'm a comparative anatomist, so that means that I... So what that does that I, even mean? It means that I learn a lot about how animal bodies are put together, and I compare that between different animals to understand how different patterns relate to what an animal does. And so to do that, and to, in order to understand fossil things, I take apart living things that are dead from the freezer to understand how their bodies are put together. And because, because we know what they do when they're alive for those animals. That's right. So you've got that comparison of a living animal looking at its dead bits and how those are put together so that you can then use that to look at the stuff that the, the other members of the panel look at. St Steve, how does that sort of comparative anatomy help the work for... for like, there are no long-necked dinosaurs alive anymore. No, um, and, and I guess that makes it a lot more difficult because we're looking at reptiles uh, that are adapted for herbivory, plant-eating. Um, and there are not too many reptiles that really do that today. Uh, and it seems that there's a problem that different groups of dinosaurs overcame in different ways. And we can tell that from looking at their teeth, for example. I've got a, an ornithopod jaw here, which has teeth that have really prominent wear facets on them. They show that they ground against each other and against the food they were eating. So a wear facet is where, yeah, so, so teeth grinding. So people that grind their teeth at night exactly. will, will understand that. Yeah, but the thing is, these guys had the benefit of replacing their teeth throughout their lives, not just getting milk teeth and then adult teeth and that's it. So they could grind them and replace them as, as many times as they wanted to. So how do we know they replaced their teeth? What, what is it in the fossil record that tells us something like that? Because we, we can see, well, you see it in, in great white sharks, because we can see the teeth behind the teeth, and we can see, you know, the tooth falls out and then another one goes. How, how do you, how, what, what, what in the fossil record tells us that? Well, uh, in this jaw, there are replacement teeth. They're hidden by the bone on the outside, but we've taken this to a CT scanner or the synchrotron, and that has allowed us, it's like an X-ray machine, it's allowed us to see inside this bone and see the teeth that were ready to come down before this animal died that it never got to use. Okay, Kayla, you, you work on reptiles. Yeah. Um, and, and Steve was saying there aren't a lot of herbivorous reptiles around anymore for, for that comparison with dinosaurs and stuff. So what, what, this, this Coming back to your chunky creature, um, what, what does it tell us about other prehistoric parts of uh, Australia? What, 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 I suppose fossils fill in gaps, don't they, about our knowledge of things? Yeah. So, so the existence of this giant chunky thing, 
What, what does it tell us? Like in the same way that the tree kangaroo on the Nullarbor Plain tells us, oh, there are trees there, does it give us any yeah, additional insights? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that fossils really necessarily fill gaps, but they definitely broaden the possibilities of what could or has ever existed. And it's definitely stuff that we don't always expect. Um, so, yeah, so the big, heavy bobtail uh, was most likely one of the very few herbivorous reptiles. Um, and the way that I can sort of tell that is by looking once again at the teeth. They are teeth that are replaced quite often, so skinks do that. They uh, basically, their teeth will slowly push up and out of their jaw um, as they're being worn, and the new tooth starts to grow underneath the old tooth. Uh, and these guys have um, pretty good tooth replacement cycles, and they have sharp teeth um, that all line up with the teeth on the other jaw, so we can tell that they're cutting. Um, and there's some crushing going on as well. Uh, they're very similar to living lizards that use, um, have, very, have pretty much the exact same teeth um, that eat mostly plant matter today, which is bobtails um, today. They're mostly herbivorous when they're adults. Um, but also the skull shape. And I actually brought a, a sea turtle skull, so a green sea turtle, the living species, um, with me as well. It's over on the, the desk getting 3D scanned later. Um, and sea turtles have very short, um, they're very like sort of blunt faces that are quite tall. And when we have very blunt, tall faces, it generally means there's lots of muscles for um, eating plant matter for reptiles. So turtles will eat um, mostly uh, like planty things and sea jellies and things like that. Um, iguanas, including marine iguanas, which eat algae off rocks, but iguanas will eat uh, plant material and there's a, a completely tree-dwelling skink in the Solomon Islands, um, which is called a monkey-tailed skink, and that eats leaves, literally only leaves. So it's completely foliverous in its foliage, um, and that has the same thing. It's like really short, blunt skulls. Kenny, mammals, funny things, aren't they? Very funny. <laughs> so, so your, your, your specialty is ma mammals, why? why yeah, anything what marsupially. Was it about anything marsupially? Yes. So why is Thylacoleo not your favourite Australian? Uh, I've got too many favourites. Too I, many favourites. But um, I, I did actually find a Thylacoleo once, and I thought it was a rock. And it was, I was up in Chinchilla, and digging this rock, and I'm like, ah, oh, it's just a rock. I'll just go around it. and then. My colleague was behind me and goes like, oh, I think you got Thalacoleo. I'm like, really? And I, I keep digging it, digging it, and like, oh, it is Thalacoleo. And I, you, you I are, have no you, idea. You, you are actually a, a paleontologist, one. aren't yes, you? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and now my colleague actually uses that in a, all of his lectures at university, showing uh, uh, that specimen of Thalacoleo uh, to all the university students. And uh, it's pretty special to actually find one of the fossils yourself. Yeah, it, it is. So, so come to each of you. I mean, I've, I've spent time at Emu Bay and out at Winton and Richmond and a whole bunch of other places and, and Naracourt and stuff, where you're there where the fossils are found. And there's a moment when you crack a fossil open or you or you accidentally find a thylacoleo, which you didn't actually realize was a thylacoleo until somebody points out that it's a thylacoleo. But there's, there's that moment. Tell, can you, each of you tell us a moment? Maybe start with you, Steve. Like, the, 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 
being able to, to find these giant Australian long-necked dinosaurs, because they, 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 they capture the imagination of the public in a big way. But for you, it's a really personal moment, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And with, with Anne, I mean, there was a big personal moment there because um, we'd found all these little bits with the skeleton and we were like, well, what are they all? We worried that they were parts of the neck, like the ribs that attach to the neck, because that's what we often find, even when we don't find neck vertebrae. And yet, then there was this weird little piece that looked like a vertebra, but it had this blind pocket. It didn't go all the way through. We were thinking, well, what can it be? It's not a vertebra. It's not from a backbone. And um, then it dawned on us that it was a brain case, and all those other little bits fell into place, and it was just like, oh my goodness, we have a sauropod skull. This is uh, amazing. We had so many bits of it, too, and we could put it all together. So with, with the brain case, and, and that, it is, it's that moment, isn't it? It's like, oh my goodness, we've got this thing. So with the brain case, you can, you can study the brain case and it can help you get a sense of, of the intelligence or the... Or lack thereof. Because I know like with T-Rex, for example, you know, we always talk about T-Rex because it's one of the most studied dinosaurs, but they look at the brain case and say, oh, actually, um, it actually had really good eyesight. Actually, it could hear really well. So that bit in Jurassic Park, oh, yep. don't move. If you don't move, it was so, yeah, no, you're dead. Like if it, it does see you if you don't move, um, and that's through studying different parts of the brain case and the size and stuff. What, what if, what, what when you look at the the cast in front of you? Yep. What are you looking at? What thoughts? What did this dinosaur think, other than not well, much? Well, <laughs> it thought, "Where's the next plant? Where's my next friend?" Where's the nearest danger? And probably, you know, it's... it's Not much more than that. It doesn't need to. And they did that yeah. for 130 million years as a group, so it worked. Um, but I guess, you know, I look at this and I, you know, if it was complete, sadly the top of the skull has popped off, but that means we can see the brain is very small. And unless dinosaurs were like birds and really sort of packed more neurons into the brain than a, than a mammal does, they probably didn't have much brain power. But big eyes... So, and they're f f uh, sideways facing, so it's looking around as it's feeding. Um, it's got pretty good eyesight. Olfactory bulb, which is where the sense of smell goes in, not so well developed, so probably not a great sense of smell. The ears, reasonably, you know, the, the vestibular labyrinth, or the, rather the inner ear, much simpler, um, is pretty well developed, so good hearing. And that's what you would expect. These are animals that have to look out for predators. They look out for danger. They need good eyesight to see that. They need good hearing to hear that. So. That works. And it's interesting, the, the, the whole bird brain thing, isn't it? Because cause they do pack more neurons. And, and, but, but brains themselves don't fossilise particularly well because they're soft tissue. That's right, yeah. Of course, so we have to look at those other things. Um, Kenny, give us a moment of discovery for you. Uh, discovery? Ah. I've, most of that discovery is actually not in the field because every time you go in the field and you dig up things, you don't know what you actually have until you go back to the lab and process it, and then you actually can find things. And I think my biggest discovery was I was just, uh, after my PhD in the lab, going through teeth of bandicoots, and eventually I found this tooth that looked different, and I'm like, I had this moment where I'm like, I think that's an ancient bilby. And it turned out later on, I described it, and it was the oldest bilby fossils in Australia, and, and then 10 years later, I found more, and I named it after Natalie. <laughs> so so Natalie is now the oldest Bilby by 10 million years older than the first <laughs> discovery. 
And there's only three fossil bilbies ever found in Australia. So three bilbies, and one of them is Natalie's Named bilby. Named after Natalie. Okay, Natalie, tell I me. I look great for 25 million years old, I think. <laughs> so, and that's fascinating too, because I suppose when you find teeth like that, all of a sudden you... Because this is what sometimes happens in... in in museum collections and university collections, you then have another look at the collection as like, oh, hang on a minute, that thing that we thought was something else is maybe that's part of this old bilby or something. Yeah, and that's why it's important to have a good museum collection so you can go back to the modern animals, compare them to your fossils, and always coming back and, and testing what your thoughts um, when you found it. Okay, Natalie, a moment of discovery for you. Other than opening the fridge and finding Open things the freezer. in there. Well, look, it's interesting that Kenny just talked about you find little bits and then at some point maybe you can add them to something else. But the fossils that, ca that I get to work on have often come as quite complete skeletons, which is amazing because it means we're able to put bodies back onto things that perhaps we only knew as teeth or, or skulls. And so for me, when I get to see skeletons that people have found and they say, okay, we think it's a kangaroo of some sort, and I go, yes, yes, kangaroo, 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 or actually those feet look more like something that would climb a tree, that would be a weird thing for a kangaroo to do. So being able to piece those things together is always really exciting uh, and, yeah, very exciting when you find something and go, that's not what I expected it to be. Yeah, I remember being at Emu Bay and there were moments in a, in a fossil thing and Emu Bay is early Cambrian and, you know, they're cracking fossils open. Oh, yeah, that's a red lichia, that's a this, that's a that. And then there's a moment where somebody cracks open a fossil and they're like, I don't quite know what that is. That... That's, I don't think we know, or, or we were there and one of the Anomalocaris eyes was found and it's like, oh, and there's this sudden moment where, where all of the big, the, 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 the professors are all looking through their eyeglasses looking at this thing and it's this really cool moment. Um, Kayla, your moment. Uh, I have a few moments where I've discovered very exciting things, but I actually specifically have one from Western Australia. Um, oh, back on theme. Yes, Good. back on theme. Um, so last year, I was lucky enough to be able to make it on um, one of the field trips with the WA Museum paleontology team um, as a volunteer. And um, even though I now work there, but not in that team. Um, and we went up north. Uh, to not too far from Exmouth um, and up there there's a whole bunch of the landscape, the geology that is um, from the Mesozoic so it's from the time of the dinosaurs uh, but it's all marine stuff so it's actually recording what was alive in the oceans when the dinosaurs were on the land uh, and we were looking around to see if we could find any fossils from that period we've found stuff up there before um, and I'd made it for the last week of the trip and everyone else it was like day 13 for them and they were exhausted. Um, and you go a little bit batty when you've been camping with the same group of people for 13 days. Um, and so they were all kind of over it. They hadn't found anything exciting on this particular trip. Um, it, the weather was horrible. They'd had everything that could go wrong went wrong. They had car troubles. Someone lost their tent in a whirly-whirly and it was, it was horrible and I think I'd been there for two or three days and we were gonna pack up the following day and go home. So we thought, last ditch effort, one last walk around and see if we can see anything. And I was looking around and I wandered off from the rest of the group to do my own thing. 
and there it was. There was a little vertebra down on the ground, and then I looked down, there was another one, and another one, and another one. So I called everyone over, and we found um, most of the skeleton of uh, another plesiosaur. So um, it's really exciting to sort of have that big pick-me-up at the end of the trip, um, even though it was something we'd found parts of, not that animal, but similar ones on a previous occasion. The best moments are the ones when everyone gets excited about stuff, not just the person who found it. Yeah, and that, that can happen at the beginning, at the middle, at the end. It can, and it can also not happen. It cannot happen. Can't it? So <laughs> um, we, we'll go f from great moments of discovery on field trips, terrible moments. Have you got a terrible moment you wish to share? Or are we going with the what happens on the field trip stays on the field trip? <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Oh, they've all gone quiet now. They've gone very quiet. Well, oh, Natalie's going to speak. I get to spend some quite stinky days in the lab with some quite stinky things. When you pull things out of the freezer, you're not entirely sure how bad it's going to smell. Yeah, we did that with a feral cat recently, actually. It so had been in someone you, else's yeah, freezer for 25 so, years. <laughs> so, so the ancient Egyptians, they would have all kinds of incense and oils in when, when they were preparing uh, mummies because obviously you know you've got somebody who's been dead for quite some time and you're doing all the things you're sticking the hook up the nose and taking the brain out and putting things in canopic jars and stuff you're obviously going to smell after a bit because they didn't have freezers like we do so what, what did, did you have like incense burning in the lab? No, I'm not big on incense myself. Uh, we thankfully in labs now have fume hoods that are just big extraction fans, so they take some of the smell away from you, which, which is nice. But you still do, if you, people who have dogs, if you've been dissecting all day, your dogs are very interested in all of the things that you smell of when you get home at the end of the day. So Kenny's nodding. Do, do you do you go? Do you have a dog, Kenny? No, but I know this. <laughs> I, I know the feeling because we 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 did a dolphin last week, and then we did a baby humpback the week before. So it's kind of a regular thing in museums is that something dies on the beach, and then someone brings you the body, and then you have to work on it, and you have to do it quickly because you don't want it to stink too much. So that's the everyday job at the museum. Yeah, I was involved in both of those and my greyhound was very much in love with my clothes when I got home. And <laughs> just looking up, that well, it, so, so it, didn't well come, it, Otto. it didn't come on the beach as a skeleton. So someone had to actually deflesh it and do the dirty, stinky job. And then eventually it became this beautiful skeleton. So, so when, when you look at a, a, an object in the museum that's, that's not a fossil, that's, a, that's a, a, was a, an animal that was alive recently, like the blue whale here in Hackett Hall, that's landed on a beach and people like yourselves have had to go, go and um, demeat it. Is that the word? It's called flensing. Flensing. Okay. Steve, you, you go out into the field, of course, mm. and, but your stuff doesn't smell, does it? No, that's the benefit to working on big things that have been dead for 95 million years. There's no flesh left, at least, not in the way the smells. <laughs> it's already been defleshed, hasn't yeah. it? And that, which is part of the fossilization process. Okay, we've got just, just a few minutes. Um, I want to ask each of you um, how you came to be working in a place where paleontology is part of your work and your career. Um, start with Kelly. You've got probably 30 seconds each. 
Uh, yeah, so I am from WA uh, and I went to university and studied both zoology and geology, so animals and rocks, um, and did research projects and a PhD and then came back to work at the Western Australian Museum. So I get to work on living animals using my zoology degree and then I get to dabble in fossils as well when I get time. Kenny. Um, I always wanted to do something with animals and I went to uni, did zoology. And at that point, I, I didn't know I wanted to do something in evolution or animal behavior. And then I got a, a lecturer that basically fascinated me about fossils. Um, and basically, from that, I was sold, and I started to work on fossils after that. And that can happen. It can be you get a really cool lecturer or a teacher or a parent that has a passionate interest or an uncle or an aunt or something, and, and that helps you kind of with, with your passion. Steve, what was it for you? Were you the dinosaur kid? Of course I was, yeah. Yes. Ever since I was about four, I loved dinosaurs, so I did work experience at Monash University in the Science Centre, met Pat Vickers-Rich and, and, um, and just got my foot in the door with Victorian dinosaur paleontology. I uh, did a PhD there later on and um, then moved to Sweden, started working with aged dinosaurs in Winton and came back to Australia and just continued, picked and, up where I left off. And that's that stuff, isn't it? It's be prepared to, to, to do volunteer things, to walk to... I, think, sure. I remember chatting with Scotty Hocknell, he did the same kind of thing at, at Queensland Museum, went and did some volunteer stuff. And, and you learn stuff, it also shows people that you're interested. Natalie? Yeah, and do things that you're excited about. So I was just always really interested in how animal bodies are put together and how they work, and I'm really lucky that I get to um, use my knowledge about how animal bodies work to help people interpret their fossils. And on that note, that is almost like I planned it that way, can we please thank our wonderful panel? It's time to spread some paleo jazz.